The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Hello, um, I'm Christopher. Today's scripture reading comes from Mark, chapter 14, verses 32 to 36. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death, remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not I will what I will but what you will. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Christopher. Really appreciate you reading. It's a pleasure to serve alongside you today, and it's good to see uh, all of you. And... uh, Uh, That includes those of you who are here with us in the sanctuary. It includes those of you out on the breezeway. I can see you through the window there. Hello. And uh, it includes those of you joining us from home and other places. Uh, We are continuing in our series in Mark's Gospel. And today we are going to look at, at Jesus, who is our cup. Jesus, who is our cup. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his uh, epic book about community called Life Together, talks about what he calls a wish dream. A wish dream. And what he meant by wish dream was uh, a gap that exists between what is true and what we wish were true about people that we are in life together with. Let's say I have a child who is extremely temperamental and unpredictable. I wish that child was more compliant and predictable. Or a spouse who was a homebody most of the time. And I wish that my spouse were more adventurous. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer was especially talking about the wish dream as applied to Christian community. And here's what he said. He said, whoever loves his dream of Christian community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of Christian community. What he's doing is he's essentially saying that, that, that Christian community is a lot like family. You don't have the luxury of choosing who your family members are going to be, and you don't have the ability to control what those family members are going to think, what their tastes are going to be, what their specific concerns and 
and, and, and passions and even obsessions might be. You know, even in Hebrews, it talks about how Christians are meant in community to spur one another on. If you think about a spur, a spur is, is used to kick the side of a horse, to irritate the horse a little bit so that the horse will become more fully what the horse is supposed to be. The one who loves their dream of community more than the community itself. The one who wishes that other people had a different kind of culture or a different set of tastes or different set of concerns becomes a destroyer of the community. And my friend Jerry from New York City said this regarding Bonhoeffer's quote. He said, there's the wish and there is the reality. And if you choose one, you have to choose the wish or choose the reality. But to choose one means you must eliminate the other. Now, if you were a first century Jew living in the time of Christ, your wish dream at the time was that a savior, a messiah, a rescuer would come, and your wish dream would be that that rescuer would defeat Rome, that power would be transferred to the rescuer, and, and like David defeated Goliath, this savior would defeat Rome conquer them, bury them in the dust in the same way that, that Pharaoh and Egypt were buried under the waters as Israel exits from slavery. They wanted somebody who was political. They wanted somebody who was military. They wanted somebody to force and coerce Rome and subjugate them so that they, the Jews, could be on top. Might is right was the prevailing thought. That was the wish dream. You know, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And, 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 uh, and Peter says, I'm sorry, Matthew 16, and Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus affirms Peter in his belief. But then Jesus starts to talk about how him being the Christ was going to play out. We will soon go to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, the leaders, the elders, the, 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 the people who head up the synagogue, they're going to kill me. That's how my messiahship, my lordship is going to play out next. And, and Peter says, no, that's not the wish dream. No, this should never happen to you. This will never happen to you. It says that literally, it says that Peter rebuked Jesus. And then Jesus, who just only moments before said to Peter, you were the rock, says, now get behind me, Satan, because you have in mind the things of men, not the things of God. So, so last week was Easter Sunday. That's the Sunday where sanctuaries all over the world fill up, even in the middle of a pandemic. Because that's the Sunday where Jesus is the winner. He triumphs over death. But come to texts like this that present Jesus as the loser. Who had to lose in order to triumph over sin. You might get a different story. Doesn't necessarily fit with the wish dream. Now, there are three things about Jesus that many of us might wish were different 
And, and we either need to eliminate our wish to surrender to Jesus, or we will eliminate Jesus in our hearts to give ourselves to our wish dream. And these three things are that he feels too much, he refuses to assert himself, and he insists that we love and welcome people who are not easy for us to like. Okay, so let's start with the first one. This is going to be fun. He feels too much. In a world that wants to run from feelings, run from emotions, Jesus presents himself as being vulnerable as a child. He's as vulnerable as a child. He says, in fact, if you want to understand the kingdom of God, if you want to enter and know the kingdom of God, if you want to participate in it, you have to become like a child again. You have to. You must. It's your only option. One of the things that's true about children is they never leave you guessing about how they feel. They never leave you guessing. They wear everything on their sleeve. They make sure that you know what they're feeling. When they're glad, they let you know. I remember uh, Al Andrews, if you're in the music industry especially, you know who Al Andrews is. So Al Andrews was uh, giving a talk to some of our Christ Prez community a while back, and I believe it was his grandson he was talking about. He was giving this little boy, I think it was his grandson, a bath, and he said that, that his grandson just spontaneously stood up naked in the bath, threw his arms in the air, and just said, yes! And Al didn't even know what he was yesing about. But that child wanted everybody to know, naked and unashamed, that he was pleased about something because he's a child. A child will also let you know in no uncertain terms when they are distressed, when they're sad, when they're lonely, when they're scared, when they're hurting. Maybe this was why C.S. Lewis said, I do not enjoy the company of small children. <laughs> Lewis went on to say, I don't enjoy the company of small children and I recognize this as a defect in myself. It is defective to run from emotion. It is healthy and mature to lean into it. In Greek society, showing distress was a sign of weakness. There's this famous story about the philosopher Socrates when he was dying. He actually was, he was executed. He was, he was executed, not necessarily martyred, uh, but, but executed. Uh, by the authorities, and, and they forced him to drink hemlock, which was poison. And of course, after he drinks the hemlock and they're waiting for him to die, his, his followers are distressed. They're just kind of looking to him, leaning on him. What's he going to say? What are we to do now that our hero and teacher is going to die? And Socrates just maintained until he died this de detached demeanor. You know, never let him see you sweat. He was calm straight-faced, stoical, like all good, respectable Greeks would be. And he's giving them, you know, philosophical one-liners to the end. Then he dies. This was also true in Jewish society. If you can't defeat us, if you can't defeat Rome or, or, or whoever the enemy, enemy is physically, then if you were a Jew, you would defeat them with your attitude. 
You know, the Greeks were stoical in the face of suffering. The Jews were filled with bravado. If you read the books of First uh, and Second Maccabees, which, which record uh, several instances of Jewish people dying as martyrs for their faith, they responded to torture in almost every instance with bravado, whether it was you know, being set on fire, killed with the sword, or killed like Jesus on a cross. They confronted the circumstance by boldly praising God until they died. The Christian martyrs, many of them were the same. You know, Polycarp, uh, the ancient church father, when he was threatened by the governing authorities, they said, uh, we will burn you at the stake unless you recant your faith. And Polycarp's reply was this, the fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little. You do not know the fire of the coming judgment. Then there's uh, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, who were uh, Christian martyrs in Oxford in 1555. And the authorities actually tied them next to each other on the same stake before they set them aflame. And Latimer famously looked over to Ridley and said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. So what happened to Jesus? All these courageous people facing death with such boldness and detachment and bravado and confident faith. What happened to Jesus? Well, he is humble, he is courageous, he is obedient, right? Not my will, but yours be done. I don't want to suffer, Father, but if it's your will, let it be done. So, so there's significant courage in his obedience, but he also felt it out loud. There was no bravado or stoicism for Jesus. He let everybody know how excruciating it was. Even before it was happening, Jesus here is just anticipating his death. And it's just the anticipation of it is excruciating to him. Says he was greatly distressed and troubled. He said, my soul is very sorrowful. If you, if you go straight to the Greek, it, it, the word suggests that he was nauseated. My soul is nauseated even to death. And it says he fell on the ground and he begged for different in feeling too much what Jesus is doing here, in, in, in demonstrating his weakness by emoting, Jesus is detoxifying our idea of manhood. Doesn't mean that you can't be brave and courageous and that that's not admirable. But Jesus is detoxifying the idea that a real man is a manly man who never lets things get to him. No, a real man is somebody who becomes like a child again. A real man is in touch with and lets you get in touch with what he's feeling. It's what a real man is. It's called vulnerability. It's called transparency. It's called being real. 
It's called being authentic. It's called being human. And Jesus was just as much human as he was God. He's a real man. And he models for us what what, uh, the wonderful musician Rich Mullins sang about when he sang, we are not as strong as we think we are. We are frail, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, forged in the fires of human passion, choking on the fumes of selfish rage. And with these our hells and our heavens so few inches apart, we must be awfully small and not as strong as we think we are. Only difference with Jesus was that his demonstration of weakness and vulnerability was a display of his strength. He detoxifies our toxic views of what manhood is supposed to be. He's never shy with his emotions. He tells us in Luke chapter 15, there's more joy in his heart and there's more joy in the heart of heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who need no repenting. In John chapter 11, he weeps, entering into and and, and feeling the pain of Mary and Martha who have just buried their brother Lazarus. In Matthew 21, he is angry at at how the, the temple worship is being exploited for personal profit and he flips tables over in the temple. He's so angry. In Matthew 23, he shows his anger by letting the bullies have it. Jesus really never bowed up on anybody except those who were bullies. Then he lets you know, I am infuriated with that. Jesus redefines manhood. The more childlike you are, not childish, you know, Paul talks about how he put aside childish ways. Not childish, but childlike. The more childlike, transparent, vulnerable, honest, real you are, the more naked and without shame you are willing to live your life. The more real you are as a man or a woman. There's also something next level unique about Jesus' suffering. And that's this. The physical pain that Jesus had to endure on the cross, which of course was was terrible, was by comparison like a mosquito bite relative to what he had to endure emotionally. The relational loss was what terrified Jesus so much. His closest friends who've been alongside him for his entire three years of ministry, are about to abandon him. He's predicted it, and it happens just as he predicted it, and he's left all alone to bear the cup of suffering by himself. But even worse than this, when he prays, Abba, Father, not as I will, but as you will, he knows, just as the Father knows, that this means separation. That, that, that Jesus is going to be excommunicated from the Trinity, from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He will be excommunicated. He will be put on the outside, taken out of the inner ring, and, and cast into the outer darkness. Not as I will, but as you will. He feels too much. I mean, how much of our lives are spent trying to avoid and run away or squash other people's emotions that make us feel uncomfortable? 
or to hide or, or, or cover our own. Jesus shows us what a grown-up is by becoming a child. But secondly, he refuses to assert himself when, when he very well could. Jesus has rights here. He has rights. You know, the promise that was made to the first Adam in the Garden of Eden, if you obey me perfectly, God said to him, you will live and never die. Jesus is the one human being who actually fulfilled that command by obeying it perfectly. So he had a right to live in ways that none of us has a right to live. If everlasting life comes to us, it comes as a gift. If everlasting life were to come to Jesus, it would come to him as a right that he earned, that he deserved. As Hebrews reminds us, he was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And so this prayer, not my will, but your will be done, I wonder if he was thinking about Isaiah chapter 53, which was written ahead of time, preemptively about him. What does it say in Isaiah 53 about God's will regarding Jesus? Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, although he had rights, it was the Lord's will to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt, our guilt, not his. He shall see his offspring, that's us. The will of the Lord, there it is again, not my will but yours be done. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand out of the anguish of his soul. He shall see and be satisfied. That's the will of the Father that Jesus is submitting to here, how could he look at his work and be satisfied? How, how, how strange that sounds, that he is crushed and satisfied. You know, one missionary from Romania told me once that back in Romania, Christians refer to Jesus as God the loser. And that's not in any way a pejorative statement. That's a statement of honor. That's a statement of affirmation of the mission of Christ and what he came to do and the courage that it took him and the resilience and faithfulness that it took him to follow through with his mission. God the loser. Why did he lose so willingly? It's right there in Hebrews chapter 12. For the joy. There's that emoting again from Jesus. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning. There's the emotion again. It's shame. Joy and scorning. Delight and resentment. Resentment of suffering and death. Joy that, that suffering and death would recapture for himself the one thing in all the universe that he had lost, and that's us, his lost sheep. His lost and betraying sheep. And this word cup, when, when he says, let this cup pass from me, this cup, this word cup all throughout scripture is a metaphor for the wrath of God. 
The wrath of God is worse than fire. You know, the, the fiery images that we get in scripture are, are all that God gives to us because God knows that we, we couldn't take or comprehend or absorb the fullness of what it really means to be cast outside of God's presence and outside of God's favor. The essence of hell is to be utterly alone. Death row inmates do not fear being put to death like they fear being put into solitary confinement. Solitary among prisoners is regarded as the worst, most torturous, most treacherous kind of punishment. It makes sense theologically. If you go all the way back to the beginning, God said into paradise, it is not good for the man to be alone. Isolation is not good. Isolation erodes. If you're a stranger and you abandon me, let's say you come to church, let's say you hate this sermon, and you come to me, introduce yourself, and say, I hated your sermon, I'm never coming back again. That would hurt. It, it would hurt some. I'd probably stew on it for an afternoon. But I'll be okay tomorrow. If you're a friend and you say, I, can't, I don't like that shirt, I'm never, ever going to like you again because you're wearing that shirt or because whatever. If you're a friend, the cut is going to go deeper. If you're my child, and you say, because you said that, because you did that, because you are who you are, I never want to see you again. It's going to devastate me. But eventually, I'll, I'll probably learn to live in that grief, and, I, and I'll survive it, even though the grief will, will never go away, if, if that's one of my daughters. If you're my wife, I think I will want to die. The deeper the intimacy, the deeper the bond, the deeper the torment when you are forsaken. We are talking about the bride that Jesus loves all abandoning him in his hour of greatest need. And we are talking about the father with whom he has been intertwined from all eternity past severing him, cutting him off. We cannot fathom the depth of Jesus' grief. The cup of Christ is the aggregate of him carrying all of our sin and the guilt thereof, all of our grief. He's borne our transgressions. He's borne our griefs. That, that's all there in Isaiah 53. So every weight, every burden that you and I have ever felt and ever will feel, Jesus bore it all on himself. The burdens and the guilt of the whole world on himself and the betrayal of those that he referred to as his bride and forsakenness by the one he knew as his father. The one time Jesus did not refer to God as Abba or as Father was when he prayed from the 22nd Psalm on the cross, my God, much less personal, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? Look at what else Jesus does when he's in the midst of all of that. Even when he is in the midst of all of this, he's still turning outward, thinking about how he can care for and tend to the needs of those around him. It's easy to miss. Verse 33, he took with him Peter, James, and John. These are three sinners that deserve the isolation that he was about to get. And instead of giving them isolation, he puts them together in community with one another before he has to die. Very soon they will be without him and they will need each other. And so he pulls them together. He will soon be excommunicated from the Trinity, and he takes three of his betrayers and turns them into a trio of friends, of companions, of brothers. He does similar things when he's up on the cross. Mary and John show up. His mother, Mary, and John, who referred to himself because he sensed Jesus' affection so deeply for him, he referred to himself as the beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, Jesus looks at John and says, here is your mother. And looks at his mother, Mary, and said, here is your son. It is not good for either of you to be alone. Maybe that's why John is the one disciple who was preserved from martyrdom. Because Jesus wanted someone there to take care of his mom. It says in Psalm 68.6 that God puts the lonely in families. Jesus is doing this even in his own isolation, even in his own loneliness. He's making sure that others are not lonely and others are not alone. Doesn't that give you chills? He's doing the same today. It's the reason why at Christ Pres we, we, we encourage, and I know it's been really hard in a year with a pandemic, but we're very eager to get back to this when it's fully safe or feels fully safe to do so, to be fully present with the church every single Sunday, and I might add, in person. You know, the church was never meant to be experienced like Netflix. I'm thankful that, that we can do that during a season like this to help people stay as connected as they can while staying safe. Very grateful for the technologies that allow this. But don't underestimate how significant it is that Jesus, when, when he was in his, his greatest anguish, still felt so pressed to put his people together with each other. To be fully present with the local church every single Sunday of your life. Unless you're sick or unless you know, you're, you're providentially hindered by some kind of emergency, arrange and organize your life around the community of God. And be, you know, take great care to gather with your group, whoever your group is, as often as possible. We are family. Very interesting, in this little trio that Jesus set up, he chose Peter and John. You couldn't get two different people, two different characters with two different personalities than Peter and John. One a bull in a china shop, one very tender and sanguine and sensitive. Which brings us lastly to how Jesus 
insists that we love and welcome people who are not always easy for us to like. That's actually the definition of what a family is. That's actually the definition of what a church is. Church is not something that you hop. The church is not something that you consume. Right? The church is family. And in fact, it's a family that is going to outlast any families that we are part of now. It's remarkable. It's not good to be alone, Jesus spoke into paradise, but it's also not good to build your community around a wish dream where you will only let into your circle, where you will only give access to people who think like you. We are not meant to customize our community in the same way that we customize a wardrobe. Learning to live as family means that there are going to be some people in your family that you're naturally drawn to, and there are going to be some people in your family that you would not naturally choose to be in life together with. Part of becoming like Christ is learning to love. And learning to love means you turn outward from yourself and your preferences and your sensibilities and your obsessions to those of others, especially the needs of others. I've been a pastor since 1996. And without question, my deepest grief, I have so many joys as a pastor, but my deepest grief is when I see the people of God hitting eject on each other for petty little junior high, middle school things. Seriously. In every church, there are 12-year-olds who seem like they're as mature as a 60-year-old, and there are 60-year-olds who seem like they're as mature as a 12-year-old. And there are many exceptions to that, by the way. Many exceptions. But that's where the grief happens for pastors. When we are called in not to be a reconciler, but a referee. Choose me over them. Fix them. No, fix them. Change them. No, change them. Get rid of them. No, get rid of them. Stop it. What I always do in those kinds of conversations, it's not like I have them every day. I'll have maybe two or three of these kinds of conversations a year. But I always talk about the Jews and Gentiles and how God saw fit to put them together. And I always talk about Matthew and Simon, the zealot who were chosen among Jesus' 12 disciples who were political opposites. I always talk about Peter and John who were personality opposites. You know, but I don't like that person is not an excuse to bail on him. It's actually a reason to move toward them. I don't like their personality, I don't like their habits, their opinions, their politics, their fixations, their culture. Well, a couple of things to think about along those lines. If Jesus values them so much that he would die for them, how could you possibly value them so little that you would deny them community? Let this sink in. On the cross, Jesus offered two prayers. My God, why have you forsaken me? And Father, forgive them. 
Who is your them? And, 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 and how does the fact that the Father has not forsaken you because he forsook Christ in your place impact your demeanor toward them? I'll give John Newton, famous writer of Amazing Grace, pastor, former slave trader, turned Christian, and then became an abolitionist. I'll give him the final word. This is uh, from a letter of his that's titled Controversy, and it's written to a, a young Christian who's in an argument, who's in a, you know, bickering a little bit with a fellow Christian. Newton says this, The Lord loves him, this other person, and bears with him. Therefore, you must not despise him or treat him harshly. The Lord bears with you likewise and expects that you should show tenderness to others from a sense of the much forgiveness you need for yourself. In a little while, you will meet in heaven. He will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon this earth, as you know now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts. And though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are to be happily in Christ with forever. So to help our hearts move in that direction, I want to invite you to stand with me and we'll marinate a little bit more in the humility of Jesus Christ. And this is directly out of Philippians 2, and this will lead us into our time of communion together. How does scripture describe the humility of Jesus Christ? Though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you so love the world that you gave. You gave the greatest thing. You gave the bond that you had with the second Adam who obeyed you so fully, so thoroughly, so non-erroneously that he had every right to live. But for the sake of those of us who disobeyed you from a different garden, the Garden of Eden, who deserve to die and yet who've been given the gift of life through his choice of death, Father, all we can do, all we can legitimately do is thank you. All we can legitimately do is humble ourselves before you. All we can legitimately do is love every kind of person that you love, which is every kind of person. Even to your betrayer Judas, you use the word friend. Father, if others are valuable enough for you to die for. 
certainly they are also valuable enough for us to live in community with. And likewise, Father, we are valuable enough to move past the shame that keeps us held down and held back from being the people, the full childlike people that you have created us to become. Father, would you strengthen and nourish us in that direction as we now receive the body and the blood of Christ in communion? Set apart this bread and this cup, we pray. Nourish us spiritually, even as you nourish our bodies physically, that we may go out into the world as cruciform daughters and sons of the triune God, who are forever yoked with you and forever yoked with one another because of Christ's excommunication. We give you thanks. We pray these things with reverence. We recognize that these words, these very words from you, put us on sacred, holy ground. Give us reverence for these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I'll remind us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then with the likes of Peter and John, as well as Matthew and Simon present, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood given for you as well. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Communion is for those who recognize themselves as unworthy and who recognize in Christ, the one who is both worthy and sufficient to take care of all of your sin and all of your shame. This is for those who have been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and who are meaningfully in covenant with a local church body. It doesn't have to be this one. It can be any church body where the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached and esteemed and where his life, death, burial, and resurrection is seen as your only hope in death and in life. If that describes you, then I would invite you to first open the top layer to get to the bread. I'll remind us again, this is the body of Christ given for you, taken me, all of you. And now the bottom layer to get to the cup. This is the blood of Christ given for you, take and drink, all of you. <clears throat> 